So please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 24 to 30. And if you have a pew Bible, you can find that on page 221. And when you have found it, please rise in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to start off this morning uh, with a little thought experiment. This is something that I do with my wife, uh, I guess, often. I don't know if she likes it, but I enjoy it very much. But I thought I'd subject you all to the same or similar experiment. How many of us have had this question posed to us where if you could go back in time, if you could go back in time and assassinate Adolf Hitler, would you? If you could go back in time and you could assassinate and kill Adolf Hitler, would you? I mean, wouldn't you be saving potentially millions of lives? And perhaps you may have heard this question, and perhaps maybe you have even answered with a resounding yes, of course. I dropkick him before, something to that effect, right? But another look at what it is really asking and what I'm asking everyone here to do is maybe to take a step back and maybe start to think about this question and perhaps you'll start to realize that this is a, a pretty shallow question. It doesn't take into account of any nuance or anything or of anyone. And upon further inspection, it just seems like a foolish question. Um, but it's apparent, it's what makes movies today. I mean, people see movies about like the multiverse and think it's so deep. But the question assumes that you, that you, the would-be killer, will know everything that will happen after the murder, even if you don't know, even if you don't know, and you don't know the full ramifications of this event until the end of time. What I'm saying is you are in a fixed point in time. We don't know what Hitler's effects will be, even though as many decades ago, will be even a year from now, let alone the end of time. And how do you know that if uh, after Hitler is killed, that one of his second in commands won't take over, perhaps someone like Joseph Goebbels, who was an even more vicious anti-Semite 
but a brilliant propagandist. He was accredited for the term or coining the term or using this term, the big lie. The big lie. And the big lie is a propagandistic term to put on your opponents as a blanket to cover everything that they say. Everything that they're going to say is basically coming from this big lie. And that's what Goebbels said about the British during the war. In an article he wrote about, and this is an article he titled in 1941, Churchill's Lie Factory. And this is what he wrote, quote, The English follow the principle that when one lies, one should lie big and stick to it. They keep up their lies, even at the risk of looking ridiculous. This is what Hitler's cronies were saying about the British or the Allies, that they are the ones with this big lie. This is what Goebbels is saying about Churchill. It's pure propaganda. It's a lie saying that the other person is lying. It's pointing to the other person and saying that they have this big lie when it's in fact you that's promulgating the big lie yourself. And it should be disquieting and maybe even disconcerting to see this kind of language used today by our media and political party. The other day I was reading um, an inner office memo from the Office of Strategic Services. It's in the National Archives that you could look up, but it's a biographical sketch of Hitler and Himmler. And I want to give you an excerpt on this biographical sketch. It's a little psychological report on Hitler and Himmler. And this is what it says. Never allow the public to cool off. That means you always have to stay angry, right? Always get people to stay angry about something. I'm going to continue. I'm not going to pause anymore. But never allow the public to cool off. Never admit a fault or wrong. Never concede that there may be some good in your enemy. Never leave room for alternatives. Never accept blame. Concentrate on one enemy at a time and blame him for everything that goes wrong. People will believe a big lie sooner than a little one. And if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. After reading this, you might start to think that if that question before was posed, you might start to think that you may have to kill a lot more people than just Hitler. And there still is the question of what if Goebbels did take power and he was even able to kill more people? How do you know? How do you know? You don't know. We don't know. But the question is important because of what it is really asking. What is the underlying critical idea here? What the question is really asking is this. Does the ends or do the ends justify the means? Do the ends justify the means? If you could achieve some kind of utopian goal, if you could achieve utopia by doing a reprehensible or morally evil act, would you? Or more simply put, would you commit an evil act if you could save the world? And I think that's what people are thinking about today. There are numerous people today that apparently think that it's okay to cheat, lie, steal, 
commit other moral atrocities if the ends are good. And if we are seeing, I think, I think we are seeing this, the outcome of this thought and process of this question being played out, would you commit an evil act if you could save the world? And the question is thrown back at us. What kind of world are you living in if you get to dictate morally right outcomes when you need to use immoral means? Whether you saw it before or not, to think that you could have your own worldview then and hold inconsist inconsistent values. That means 2 plus 2 sometimes equals 4, but sometimes equals 5. Bridges would collapse. There would be no sustainable economy. The world would burn. And you might think, well, that seems a bit extreme, right? That's just a little extreme. It's just a little lie. It's just a little bit stealing. So you would commit murder, an immoral act, to save the world, what you deem to be a morally right outcome. And this is the basic question of ethics, right? If you ever took ethics in college or um, beyond that in higher education, that's what you would probably go through. So would you commit murder, an immoral act, to save the world, what you deem to be a morally right outcome? And then the question again is, what kind of world is it if murderers get to decide when murder is okay and when it is not? Or do you now have to face the punishment? Let's say you did it. Do you now have to face the punishment for the crime that you committed in the world that you just saved? And even more, wouldn't you ask, would the world be justified in taking the life of the one who saved it? And this, is, this kind of idea and these questions and these kind of moral obfuscations are what's being peddled today. Here is the moral good. How they decided that it was good is just some kind of, uh, they use some kind of wizardry. But here's this moral good. But they will say that to get this good, this quote-unquote good, we need to rob stores. We need to, you need to mutilate your body. You need to abuse your children. You need to murder your babies. What's missing here, of course, What's missing in this equation is the character of God. God has revealed to man his will and his law. We know what is up because God. We know what is down because God. We know what is fornication and sexual immorality, and we know that it is wrong because of God. We know that theft is wrong because of God. We know that murder is wrong because of God. And God never makes an exception clause for his laws. That means you can't lie on your resume, even if it means you will get that job. You can't steal from your neighbor, even if he's that rotten guy who doesn't deserve the things that he has. And you can't commit sexual immorality, even though it's 2022. God instates his rules. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8 to 11, he says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose 
calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Those who do not know God may believe that their ends will justify the means, but those who are of God and have been called by God cannot reason to break any one of his commandments, deny his sovereign will, or bring reproach to his holy name. And as we go over this particular section in 1 Samuel, I, I ask that you would keep this in mind, and hopefully you see this overtly being displayed when you believe that you could just disobey God just a little, just a little, remain unrepentant just a little, and think that you can go away unscathed. And so in the passage in chapter 14, there are four sections, but three main sections. And we're going over these three main sections. The fourth section is the end, but the three main sections are the introduction, faith, tragedy, and the last part is an epilogue, okay? Introduction, faith, tragedy, and the epilogue. So let's go through the introduction. The introduction of two roads. Introduction of two roads from verses 1 through 5. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron, the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side, the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sene. The one crag rose on the north front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. In chapter 13, we saw that even though God gave Saul the victory over the Philistines, even though God gave Saul the victory over the Philistines, the Philistines started to amass their armies. And they were like sand on the seashore. The armies were so vast that the Philistines started to amass. And so Israel either fled, hid, or cowered behind Saul. Saul in chapter 13 would burn rashly. He would burn offerings disobeying God. And that was the disobedience. When he thought that Samuel wouldn't come at the allotted time, he burned those offerings. And Samuel and Saul then parted ways. And this is chapter 14 as the story continues. There is a mass of Philistines, the armies that have gathered around Michmash. And there are two people, basically two people in the beginning of this chapter. Jonathan in, chapter, in verse 1 and Saul in verse 2. Jonathan in verse 1 is on the move. Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison. Saul is stationary. He is at, at the outskirts of Gibeah in a cave. So one is moving, one is sitting. And the one that was with Jonathan was an armor bearer. 
This is someone who may have carried your shield and other weaponry, but it was someone that fought by your side. And we'll find out more about him later. But the one with Saul is also notable. There is a long description of him. Who's the one by Saul's side? It was Ahijah, son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord of Shiloh. There was someone from the line of Eli. But Eli's line, God had judged. He rejected him. And without Samuel, Saul had no prophetic direction. So he called Ahijah to assist him, even though he was part of the priestly line that was rejected. If you remember, Ichabod was the dark day when God's glory had departed. God's glory departed Ichabod. And his father, Phinehas, was the worshiper-abusing, women-prostituting, violent priest. And his father before him was Eli, who had a prophet come to him in chapter 2 and tell him directly that his line is finished. It would be cut off. He would be excluded. And it was verified also in chapter 3 with Samuel himself. But this is the person, Ahijah, that is sitting with Saul. And since Saul didn't have a legitimate prophet, he had to settle with someone who was from a rejected priestly line. What help could such a person give? What help could a person like that give? But Jonathan was on the move. He decided not to tell his father about it. And now I believe the narration has, is, lean, is leaning us toward that this was actually a wise move, given Saul's rashness in the past. And there's this little description of the topography of the area leading to the Philistine encampment. It says one was Bozes and the other was Sene. One led to the north end while the other led to the south end. Bozes is a, is a word that's really similar to the Hebrew word for silt or watery ground or shining. It was shiny. So it was probably a very slippery path, one that people wouldn't normally take. If you ever went hiking, would you really take the slippery path? I mean, do you want to die? You wouldn't take that. That was Bozes. And Sena is similar to the Hebrew word for thorny. There's a lot of thorns and bushes and all this, um, you know, shrubbery that's blocking your way. So it's probably a very thorny path. So some of you are hikers. Some of you like hiking. And if you went on a hike and one part was slippery and the, other, the next part after was thorny, how excited would you be to go on this hike? But this is the setting that Jonathan was in and that we are introduced to. So one is moving, and you have to look at what he is moving into and what is sitting, and you have to look at who he is sitting with. I think that has a lot to do with where we can also relate. If you move, it's going to be rough. If you make these decisions, if you say, okay, I'm going to abide by your word, God, it's going to be rough. You're going to lose friends. People aren't going to like you on social media. But on the other hand, if you don't want to hear that stuff, you can sit with somebody that God has rejected. The law of God is not with them. And you can hear something, perhaps, to tickle your ears, but it will not be the prophet of God. The next chapter, the next section is faith. And it's not just faith, it's actionable faith from verses 6 to 23. Actionable faith. And looking at the odds of that the two would have faced, meaning Jonathan and his armor bearer, 
in chapter 3, at least Jonathan had, chapter 13, at least Jonathan had a thousand men with them. This time there's just two, and there's more people that they're facing. And looking at what they had to traverse, Jonathan then looks at his armor bearer and says this in verse 6, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Remember that the people that they were facing weren't just any enemies. They were the uncircumcised. They were enemies of God. And this was a term of derision used by Jonathan. He can clearly distinguish who was the people of God and who were not the people of God. And to that he says something that we in the world would call wild. That's pretty wild because why would you go against people that could utterly destroy you? They can stomp you out. There are so many of them. But Jonathan isn't deluded with crazy optimism. He was not delusional. He understood the circumstances around him. He knew the odds. And that's why faith isn't the opposite of reason. Faith is reason that understands that the people of God don't look at circumstances, but they look to God. The people of God don't look at circumstances, but they look to God. And the conviction in his words are clear. He goes, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It may be. It may be that God will save us. He knows that God could do it with a lot of people or with just a few. But the main point was that he knew that God is the one that saves, and perhaps God would save us now. What is actionable about Jonathan's faith is that he puts himself then at God's disposal. He wasn't, you know, willing after 16 proofs that he needed before he acted. He moved and he put himself in God's hands. Jonathan knew that God could save with 100,000 men, or God could save with a few thousand men, or God could save with a few hundred men, or even perhaps now he could, perhaps, it may be, God could save even with just us two. You see, Jonathan didn't know the future. Like, we always want to know. We want to know, is this going to be sure? Are you sure that this is going to work? If I go back and shoot Hitler, are you sure this is going to happen? Jonathan didn't know the future. But he chose to put his faith in God. Some people can't move unless they are absolutely certain. But what we are being taught is that faith cuts through that notion, that this was a key characteristic of Jonathan's faith. His faith didn't dictate to God his demands. God, you need to show me this and this and this. He just said what was true. This is what's true. He can save with a lot. He can save with a little. Perhaps he will save us. What that means is his faith didn't make God his own errand boy. But his faith had him subject himself to God. You see, there's a difference. Some people think that faith means I need to make God my errand boy, but that's not faith. Faith that Jonathan is showing us is when we subject ourselves to God. 
He just said what he knew to be true. These were uncircumcised fellows who didn't know God, and that, and the God that revealed himself to Jonathan was a God that delivers his people. These are true things, right? And so he turns to his armor-bearer, and his armor-bearer is with him all the way. So Jonathan proposes a sign to know whether God was with them or not. Once they cross over, if they say that they will come to them, that's not a good sign. But if they cross over and they say, come up to us, then Jonathan is saying, we're going to take that as a sign that God gave all these guys to us. Now, while we can speculate why Jonathan chose to use these two uh, things as signs or whether to fight or not to fight is not really said, but perhaps the next few verses will give us a hint. Jonathan and his armor bearer come up and show themselves to the Philistines. And they go, look at these Hebrews coming out of their holes, right? The term Hebrews was used disparagingly. It's making fun of them. Look at these Hebrews, right? They obviously didn't see Jonathan and his armor bearer as any threat at all. So they tell them, come up to us. Come up to us. And we'll show you a thing, right? Come up to us and we'll teach you a thing or two. It might be something more similar to our vernacular today. So Jonathan takes that as a sign. He's like, oh, this is the sign. So now you see a picture of Jonathan and his armor bearer with all their equipment climbing on his hands and feet to get to the Philistine camp. They literally had to climb the crags and the mountainous area to get to the Philistines and perhaps they thought, Jonathan's not going to make it. You're not going to make it. But once they made it, they struck down 20 Philistines in a very short span of time. And this started to cause a panic in the camp. So they climbed this mountain, and immediately they struck strike down 20 Philistines. In verse 15, it says the word terror or panic. You see the word panic three times. Panic in the camp. The raiders trembled, that's the same Hebrew word for terror, and because there was a great, very great panic or terror. And that very great, that word very great, is translated from the Hebrew word Elohim. And if you know Hebrew even a little bit, Elohim means God. So it means a God-level terror. So in verse 15, this is what happens to the Philistine camp when just two Hebrews who are coming out of their holes climb this mountain, get to the top, strike down 20 Philistines. There is terror times three. This was terror-level God. And meanwhile, Saul's company is just watching all of this unfold. They're just looking. And Saul's like looking, the watchmen look, and they tell Saul. And Saul calls on Ahijah, the rejected line of Eli, to bring the ark of God. Because I suppose Saul's looking at this as like, wait, is this God? I don't know if it's God yet. Is it God? I'm not sure. But even as he was talking to Ahijah, the tumult, it says, grew more and more. The Philistines were now in full-blown disarray. There was chaos everywhere in this camp. And Saul and his men decided to finally go after them. And even then, the Philistines were so confused. Even after Saul went into their camp, they were so confused, they were still killing each other. And the rest of them were fleeing. It was a hot mess. The rest of the Israelites after that would go in. They would come out of their hiding places, out of you know, the little places they were hiding, and they would go out and fight against the Philistines. And here is the fruit 
of the faith that one man had. The fruit of the faith is in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. The next section is darkness or a tragedy, and uh, its tragedy darkens from verses 24 to 46. This is an incredible victory. No matter how you look at it, this is an insane, incredible victory. But as clear as this victory was, they couldn't celebrate. Israel couldn't celebrate. Why? Even though the Lord, it says the Lord saves the day in verse 23, the narrator starts to give us more insight what happened before that complete victory. In verse 24 it says, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. In verse 23, the victory's won. It was won by the Lord. However, in verse 24, the men were hard-pressed. That's the same word for oppressed. Why were they hard-pressed? It was because Saul, their king, had placed a curse on any soldier until it was evening and there was this decisive victory. This led to exhaustion. People were fainting in verse 28. And it also led to the breaking of the law. In verses 32 to 34, it says the people pounced on the spoil. That's how hungry they were, that once they saw the spoil, they pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. That's how hungry they were. They, were, they didn't even have time to cook it. They were just eating the animals raw. Then they told Samuel, Behold, <clears throat> the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. Leviticus chapter 17, Deuteronomy chapter 12, there is strict prohibition eating blood. You couldn't eat animals while there was blood still in it. And here they were standing on the brink of starvation, exhaustion. When they see cattle, they pounce and just start tearing into them. And it's interesting because the word that's used, hard-pressed, the word for hard-pressed is used once more in chapter 13, verse 6. In chapter 13, verse 6, it's because of the Philistines that the Israelites were hard-pressed. That's what it says. They were hard-pressed because of the Philistines. Now, ironically enough, it's because of Saul and his rash vow that he made everyone take that they're hard-pressed just the same. Some leaders just have that talent. They turn victories into distress. They take a booming economy and turn it into trash. They make the people hard-pressed. Now, if you remember chapter 13, it was Jonathan who won the initial battle against the Philistines with a smaller army than Saul, even when Saul was in range, perhaps even closer than Jonathan. Jonathan was the one that went in. And now here again, it's Jonathan who was used by God to bring forth this incredible success. So Jonathan and Saul are contrasted here, but it is Saul who puts 
hardships on Israel. So Jonathan, used by God, brings forth this incredible success. Saul puts Israel onto hardships. So the question that someone might be thinking after reading all of this, you see all this narrative, you might ask, why didn't God choose Jonathan instead of Saul? Isn't that the more obvious choice? Why did he choose Saul? Why didn't he choose Jonathan? Why didn't he at least then continue Saul's lineage so that a wise leader like Jonathan would come after, because we, we know, I'm going to spoil it a little bit, but you all know that Saul's lineage ends right there. His kingship is done after him. Why couldn't God just at least extend Saul's lineage of kingship to Jonathan? And these are questions we might normally come up with that you might think. However, these aren't things that God gets hung up on. What is God most interested in? He is most interested in obedience. In other words, we are most interested. We are most interested in how we get to get into a position of rule. God is most interested in how we get to serve. And Jonathan's example should prove this. Jonathan not being king, even though he is a better man, clearly a better man than Saul, that's not the point. The point is that Jonathan being a better servant than Saul is what made Jonathan great. We think that the ends is that we must get power or money or happiness. But God is clearly showing us that it is the means that is just as important if not more, for our purposes of learning today. Saul, who didn't understand this, Saul, who thought that the ends should justify the means, would even go as far as almost killing his own son. He almost killed his own son, who, by the way, saved the kingdom, his own kingship, his life thereby, over eating honey because of some curse that he put down. For Saul, the end was his kingship, and he wanted to make that continue no matter what. And if that was the ends, then the means meant that anything is permissible and even necessary, even if it meant sacrificing his own child. It was because the people ransomed. They vigorously defended. The people said, you can't kill your child. That's why Jonathan lived. Saul may have retained his kingship in the end, but it was a victory that was darkened by tragedy. And you might think, who would do that? Who would do that? Who would sacrifice their own child for their selfish gain? Someone notoriously evil? Some uncircumcised Philistine? Hitler? You know, no. It was Saul, Saul who had so much potential, Saul who was given so much. He was a head taller, better looking than everyone else. It was Saul who started off with just a little disobedience. 
He waited seven and a half days, not eight. That's it. He waited seven and a half days, not eight. And he thought to himself, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? I had to do what I had to do. You don't understand. I had to do what I had to do. Why are you leaving me, Samuel? Why are you leaving? You know what? I'll just set up a priest myself. You know what? I'll take the ark myself. You know what? I'll rally the men up myself because I'm going to keep this kingship for myself because I deserve it. I earned it. I need it. The folly of Saul has now come into full view for all to see, but it starts with just a little disobedience. Saul's story then is given to us as a warning. And perhaps also the story here is here to remind us to live in fidelity to the one that has saved us, the one who has saved us. Christ said, take up your cross and follow him. The road might be slippery, maybe even thorny, but that road is the road that he's leading you on because that road is salvation. There is no other way. No matter what spectrum you're on, whether you're outright uncircumcised or someone in the company of believers, it doesn't matter unless you have faith in Jesus Christ. You then see that the ends don't justify the means, but it's God who ordains the means and ends of all things. So yes, the ends matter, but don't let anyone fool you and tell you otherwise. The means matter just as much. Following Christ is getting to heaven, but getting to heaven entails following Christ. And the last section is the epilogue. And I titled this one, The Epilogue of Sorts, from verse 47 to 52. The Epilogue of Sorts. In this summary section, we wrap up Saul's reign. And this may be weird to read for some people. And the scriptures frequently do this. It weaves us in and out of narratives. But in this portion, it might be weird because we actually see a record of his military victories. Even this one with the Philistines is a victory from Saul or for Saul, albeit in a negative light. One thing that we can gather is that Saul was successful in his military excursions. Whether he went east, meaning to Moab and Ammon, or southeast, meaning Edom, or northeast, meaning Zobah, or west, meaning the Philistines, he was successful. And I also think this proves to us that history isn't always so simple as we try to make it. There is no decisive verdict on history because it's not man who decides or interprets history, but it's God who reigns over history. What we see here is that God isn't looking then for military victors, but rather servants. He's not looking for a military victor He's looking for a disciple. Some people think that they can come to church or they can only trust in God only after they've achieved some level, only after I've achieved some task. And I want to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. God requires obedience. And that means you leave your life of sin now, turn, and follow him. 
The disciples dropped everything, including their fishing nets, when Jesus called them. And this is the call that God gives to those who would be his disciples. It's not after you've achieved some sort of spiritual level that you follow Christ. You follow Christ, and he is the one that changes, empowers, and leads you. Saul may have won many military victories, and you may also receive many accolades in the world as well. But only one thing matters at the end. Are you a disciple of Christ? Because Christ says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Let's pray. Lord, in many ways, many of us, if not all of us, we, all, we too also are hard-pressed and we may be hard-pressed because of our sins. We may be hard-pressed because there is tragedy that is around us. We may be hard-pressed recognizing that we need a Savior. We need you, O oh God. We need to follow you and not follow the ways of the world. As enticing, as tempting, as luscious as that might look, God, we also recognize that these things are folly and they fall short of your eternal glory. But you offer us a way in Christ Jesus that if we follow you, you are the one that, are, that is going to lead us. You are the one that's going to protect us. You are the one that's going to strengthen us. Help us to be a people that follow you. Let's take this time to pray and lift up our hearts to God. What is it in your life that perhaps may be holding you back? that you need to fully commit to God. Maybe the circumstances seem really great, just like the Philistines were as num numerous as the sands of the sea. However, they are not reigning. It is God who is on his throne reigning. Take this time to lift up your heart to God. Ask him to give you a heart of faith, that it will be actionable, that you will live out this faith in accordance with his will, so that you may be a disciple of God. Let's pray.